welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. I want to just to draw your attention there to Ephesians 3, at the end of that chapter, verse 20 and 21. If you've been following through the series in Ephesians, you know that uh, this these first three chapters are basically the the theological uh, content of this letter. And then uh, in chapter 4, he turns to the practical application and uh, admonitions uh, coming out of that. But at the end, as often Paul will do, after he's uh, written about our God and the glory of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, uh, he will... um, have a benediction, a praise to the Lord for all that he's done. And so we see that here in verse 20 and 21, where he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we do want to lift our hearts to you this morning and praise as the Apostle Paul did as he was writing this letter when he stopped and thought about what you have accomplished for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is it is cause for us, Lord, to also stop and to think upon your grace and your mercy for us, for your power at work within us. It's uh, more than we can fully comprehend what you've already done for uh, those of us who have put our faith and trust in you. Uh, You said earlier in this letter that uh, it was according to the power of the the resurrection of Christ. And Lord, that uh, work, the work of the Spirit of God is still at work uh, within us. We thank you, Lord, for that. And we uh, pray, Father, that we might yield our wills, our minds to you, so that you can accomplish uh, all that you endeavor to do, all that you purpose to do in our lives. And so this morning, as we come before you, we, uh, we seek, Father, to uh, worship you truly and to give you honor and glory for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, may it also admonish us this morning as we hear your word, as we've uh, met together and and hear your word, and we also might be uh, challenged and encouraged that uh, you would accomplish your will in our lives this morning. So we we thank you and praise you for who you are and what you've done. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Christ is our intercessor and advocate before the Father. Let's rejoice in this truth and stand and sing. Great. 
tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great singing. Please be seated. Good morning, church. Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. As a church, we have been working our way through the book of Ephesians with uh, Pastor Bryant, and we plan to continue that study next week. But today it is my privilege to begin a new series through the book of James. It is our hope that these two preaching services will work, a series will work hand in hand to urge us as a church to rejoice in all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, and then in response to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. With that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to do a marvelous work through us and in our church. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to twist it, we don't have to soften it, we don't have to make it say more than it does. I thank you that it is sufficient and complete. I thank you that we can hold to it as your words. Lord, I pray that everything that is said this morning, all of our our thoughts, all of our the intents of our hearts, Lord, would be towards glorifying you and leaving today with a new appreciation for you with nothing but praise on our hearts for our God. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would use your words in James this morning to convict us of where we're in sin, to encourage those, Lord, who are feeling downtrodden, who are discouraged. And Lord, to, as a church, unify us. Lord, help us as we uh, seek to live out our faith here in uh, George. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of James is actually a letter written by James, the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem sometime around the year AD 40. James is writing to Christians who have been scattered throughout the known world, fleeing persecution in Palestine. The original recipients of this letter may previously have been members of the church in Jerusalem, And James is writing this letter as a pastor concerned for the welfare of those he had witnessed come to Christ. 
a lot of what James writes is practical in nature, similar to what we see in the book of Proverbs. Sometimes it is difficult to say why he jumps from one concept to the next. But be assured, God's purpose for breathing out his word through James is clear. All believers who are confronted with this letter are urged to live out your faith in a time and place where the things of this world are at war with the church and seeking to infiltrate it. So as we study James, keep in mind this admonition to live out your faith despite the earthly circumstances you might find yourself in. This morning we will study chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, with the theme of joy in trials. Let's begin in verses 1 through 4, where we are encouraged with the truth that trials have a purpose. Trials have a purpose. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James opens this letter with, the insi- with insight into his personal transformation and with a challenge for us. He says in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most commentators agree that James, Jesus' own half-brother, did not believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah during his earthly ministry. But here we see the outcome of a man who was confronted with the reality of the risen Jesus. This childhood rivalry and jealousy, is, it's gone. And what remains is a humbled man boldly proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah of Israel, and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, the one to whom service is due. We also see how James describes himself. He says he is a servant of God and of Jesus. This concept of servitude, this lowering of your own priorities and desires below that of your master is something that our individualistic society kicks against. Before the Christian, our identity as the servants of Jesus Christ is our great privilege and joy. We no longer need to pretend that we are in control of everything. We no longer have to be the ultimate authority in truth. No longer is death and the grave an adversary that cannot be defeated. As servants of Jesus Christ, we have the great privilege of serving the King whose plans and purposes are greater than all others, even our own. With this in mind, let's look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The Jewish Christians that James is writing to have suffered much in the way of trials, and most, if not all, the trials that James is referring to are brought upon them by no fault of their own. They were persecuted and chased out of Jerusalem for simply bearing the name of Christ. So without land or shelter, they traveled into the known world, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ and seeking a reprieve from religious persecution. And around the same time of James writing to them, the whole land was also struggling under the burden of famine, bringing upon them even more physical and financial suffering. With this backdrop, James tells them to count it all joy when they suffer trials. 
What is this joy that James is talking about? He clearly is talking about something other than our natural response of sorrow, self-pity, and despair. This Christian joy that James is urging us to have is something else. Something that we cannot attain on our own. Christian joy starts with the head knowledge of truth that the Holy Spirit uses to turn our hearts towards God, leaving us with thoughts and emotions filled with praise and thankfulness for God and His ways. So it is a head knowledge that the Spirit uses to change our hearts, which then, as time goes on, it's not immediate, but as time goes on, this changing of our heart turns into emotions and thoughts that are thankful and praising God. But this is not our natural response to trials and tribulations. This is a supernatural response only brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within the children of God. James goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, and explain why we should meet trials with joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. By using this phrase, the testing of your faith, James is painting a picture for us of a master craftsman refining a precious metal. 1 Peter 1 verses 6 through 7 uses the same imagery. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So these people are going through trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Believer, when you and I face trials and tribulations in this life, it is not pointless suffering. When we are assailed by the world in our ever-shifting circumstances, know that God is using the testing of our faith to refine us and to mature us into the image of His Son. He is removing the dross, the waste, the remnants of the dead creature that we once were before and is maturing and strengthening us as the new creation in Christ that we now are. James says that this testing of our faith produces steadfastness. The definition of steadfastness is to be resolutely firm and unwavering. He then finishes this thought in in verse 4 saying, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God, through James, is comforting his children by telling them the end result of their trials here on earth. He wants to conform us into the image of his son. This perfection and completeness cannot be fully attained in this life. Glorification is the gift of God to his children when they leave this life behind. But every believer is called to earnestly strive for a mature, resolutely firm and unwavering faith that is whole and without the blemish of doubt. We can rejoice when we face trials because they have a purpose. They are refining and maturing us. 
when faced with the difficulties of life, you and I will often sense our need for wisdom. So many times I have hit a wall because I didn't know what to do. I would study the scriptures, I'd be encouraged by them, but still my specific circumstance that just seemed like there was no right answer. There was no solution to my problem. In verses 5 and 8 through 8, James instructs us all and encourages us all to ask for wisdom and faith. In verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There is truth in saying that we should all wake up every morning with our need for the wisdom of God on our hearts. Applicable here. But also in view here are the momentous trials and difficulties that we meet in life. The loss of a job. The death of a loved one. Or how to respond to being sinned against. We know James teaches that we can count it all joy because the trials are refining and maturing our faith. But how are we to respond to trials within the complexities of real life? When I left military service, everyone told me that I had great potential for a civilian career or employment. I was not going to have any problems with my experience and training, finding a way to provide for my family. But the year was 2020, and COVID racked the world. Most, many, many companies had to downsize. They were simply trying to keep the employees they had and not you know, have to let them go. And as the date of my final paycheck, loomed nearer and nearer, I started to feel this tension in my own heart. It was like an anvil on my chest of this doubt, this fear of, was I going to be able to provide for my family? But James points us in verse 5 to our generous Heavenly Father when we meet these trials in life. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. With the word generously comes this idea of God's singleness of heart, his unwavering character, and his unreserved desire to give his, his wisdom to his children. Not only does he give wisdom generously, he does so without reproach. One commentator put it this way, God does not reprimand us for past failures, or remind us endlessly of the value of his gifts he gives. This verse, like the teaching of Jesus to which it is related, encourages us to come boldly with our requests to the unwavering, gracious God. You mind, Jim? God stands ready and willing to give generously and without reproach to his children that call on him in faith. But in verses 6 through 8, James does give a warning to those reading this letter lest they should come before God with a divided heart. Verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts 
is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The words doubting and double-minded carry with them the concept of being double-souled or divided in loyalty. This is not a new concept. In the Old Testament, there were warnings about coming to God with a divided heart in contrast to a whole heart. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus warned his disciples about divided loyalties when he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. James once again is painting for us a picture. And in this picture, he is displaying the unwavering singleness of heart that God has towards us, contrasted with the doubting, double-mindedness, and divided loyalties that some come to him in prayer with. That person is compared to a wave in the midst of the sea, constantly changing, never keeping its shape or direction, with no anchor for his soul. Are we praying to God and serving him with a whole heart? Do you see divided loyalty in your faith? Am I only pursuing God half-heartedly? The good news for us all is that God stands ready to forgive and to restore the one who comes to him in humility and faith. In verses 9 through 11, James continues this theme of joy and trials by highlighting one of our greatest stumbling blocks when it comes to trials. He points out that our hearts are so easily deceived by the attractiveness of wealth and possessions. But James turns the world upside down and compels his readers to boast in God alone. Verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. At first glance, that passage may seem a bit confusing. Or it may sound like James is simply repeating the wisdom principle, be content in whatever circumstance you are in. That is true, but James is saying more than that. He is contrasting the temporary wealth we may may or may not have on this earth with the eternal riches and blessings we have in Christ. When he says the lowly brother is to boast in his exaltation, he is saying that the poor man, the man who is of low esteem in the eyes of the world, can and should boast in his new exalted position in Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 6, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And the powerful rich man, the one who has everything in the eyes of the world, must boast only in his position in Christ. Even if his identity in Christ costs him his status, His wealth costs him everything in the eyes of the world. We see this in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 9. It says, Thus says the Lord, 
Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him boast, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 2 Corinthians 10 says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And in Galatians 6.14, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. If you are here today as a child of God, then it does not matter if you are rich or poor, powerful or weak. We are all equal heirs of the riches in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As a special warning to the rich, James gives a reminder that the rich man is still just a man made of dust. And and his time on this earth is but a moment when things are going well. When we have health and prosperity, it is easy for us to feel sufficient and our thoughts may turn less frequently to God. But James warns us again in chapter 4 about this arrogance. Chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. No matter what economics or societal trials you and I may face, whether you are rich today and poor tomorrow, Even if you remain poor from now till the day you die, know that this world and its riches are nothing compared to the eternal riches found in Christ. And because of this, we can boast in God alone, no matter our outward circumstances. In this final section on joy and trials, James counters the claim of some that since God is sovereign, then God must be the one tempting me to sin. So what's the point? Surely no one can withstand God. But James is adamant that we cannot be deceived. We should not be deceived because God tempts no one. Let's read verses 12 through 18. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James begins and ends 
this topic of temptation with good news. First, the good news is that all those who remain steadfast, resolutely firm, and unwavering through trials will receive the crown of life promised by God. The crown he is envisioning here is not a golden crown symbolizing power and ruling authority. Instead, it is the laurel wreath that symbolized the glory and honor bestowed upon an athlete that had successfully completed the race. When the children of God finish the race of this life, he has promised to bestow upon us the glory and honor of eternal life with him. He is our reward. He is our eternal treasure. Be strong and courageous in your race here on earth. God has promised that if you love him, you will receive the crown of life. And when you feel condemned by your own failings, remember that God is the one who promised he will bring you to the end. Jude 24 reminds us that God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. If it were up to us, we would fail. Praise be to God, who is the author and finisher of our faith. With that in mind, James confronts the error of blaming God for your sin. He says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James draws a very distinct difference between the words test and tempt. Remember back to verse 3. It is clear that God does test the faith of his children in order to mature and strengthen them. But God does not tempt anyone to sin. How are these two different? James goes on to explain in verses 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God tests his children through outward circumstances for the purpose of maturing and strengthening them. But temptation to sin only enters the picture when our own desires lure and entice us away from God. We do not need any help to be tempted. Our own hearts are proficient at worshiping the creation rather than the creator. James goes on to describe the end result of a person that is without Christ. He says that sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This this is the idea of sin running its full course and and is in contrast to the man in verse 12 who remained steadfast under trial, who stood the test and received the crown of life. James is saying that there are two types of people in this life. You are either a child of God running this race with steadfastness and genuine faith in God, or you are a child of Satan, given to your own desires and pursuing sin until it is fully mature, leading to spiritual death. This concept of there being two types of people or two paths to walk in this life is not new. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. James, again, in these verses, is warning his hearers about having a divided heart. He is calling us to follow after Christ with our whole heart, undivided, with no doubting. We are either pursuing life in Christ or we are pursuing death without him. Verses 16 through 18 give encouragement to the believer as we seek to live out our faith with joy. Verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived by any cunning and wisdom of man that says it is okay to walk in sin, like this lie we previously read about, claiming God is the originator of our sin. Instead, hold to this, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God is not the author of evil. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. God stands ready unwavering, unchanging, with singleness of heart to give perfect gifts to his children that will produce maturity and steadfastness. These gifts might not look like the thing we want. It, It might be a trial. It might be a difficulty that he wants us to stand firm and resolutely strong, unwavering in. But he says it's a perfect and good gift. Why would he do this? Why does he stand in the singleness of heart? And why would he give us things that he knows would bring us into full maturity? Verse 18 tells us, Because it was his will to save us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is his plan. His purpose for his glory. It is his purpose to bring us to the end. And this is just the beginning. We are simply the first fruits of his new creation. There is so much for us to look forward to at the end of this age when Christ will finally bring all things under his dominion and rule. James has taken us on somewhat of a journey through the opening verses of this letter. He has flipped the world upside down and called us to think and live in a way that is at odds with what the world and our flesh hold so dear. But with that call, James has given us so much comfort and hope in our God who is gracious and merciful, exalting us in Christ and promising the crown of life to those who love him. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your word. Thank you for the comfort that it brings to us. And thank you, Lord, for its power to convict us, to pierce through to our hearts, and to draw us back to you. For even that is your mercy and your grace being poured out on us. I pray, Father, for this church. I pray, Lord, that we 
would seek to follow you in a way that is upside down compared to the world around us. Praising you, glorifying you, giving you thanks even in the midst of the difficulties of life that we face. I pray, Lord, that as we leave today, that we would leave with our thoughts lifted up and our eyes lifted up to you in thankfulness and praise for our great God. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Christ is our hope in this life and the next. Let's confess these truths together. Please stand once more. Christ, I 